everybody has talent. But how can you use it to the fullest? We invite incredible people with an unknown talent. Find your inspiration at the Unknown Talent Podcast. This podcast is enabled by Gulliver Trainingen. My name is Isaac Prilaltensky and I work at the University of Miami. I was the Dean of the School of Education and Human Development for 12 years. Now I am a professor, a psychologist, I'm a community psychologist and also the Vice Provost for Institutional Culture at the University of Miami, which basically means that I work with a team of colleagues to improve well-being in the university. Can you tell us something about um, how did you grow up uh, when you were young, you had your dreams, you had your environment. How did you get here? So I grew up in Argentina. I was born in Córdoba, Argentina. I lost my parents in a car accident when I was eight years old. I became an orphan. Both my parents died 50 years ago. When I was eight years old, I grew up with an aunt who adopted me and my siblings. So we were very poor. There were six siblings, three of my side and my three cousins. We all lived together. And we grew up with financial deprivation, but there was a lot of love in the house. My aunt took care of us. She raised us. I was very grateful. Um, Growing up in Argentina was challenging because there was a lot of anti-Semitism. I am Jewish, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. There was a dictatorship, which we were fighting as young people. So I was politically active in the resistance movement in Argentina. But many people lost their lives in Argentina during the 70s. The military dictatorship was very ruthless with the opposition. So I became aware of the importance of fighting for fairness, not just for wellness, but also for fairness in society, not just for happiness, but also for social justice. And I think that that theme of promoting wellness with fairness became a central theme in my life. Because what I saw around me was that in order for everybody to feel happy, to thrive, to develop their talents, everybody needs to have opportunities. So you experienced how it is to have uh, an environment who is dangerous, not open, no freedom. You can lose everything. So it's, it's a sort of a higher mission. Yes. I saw a lot of people suffering, unjustly so, just for wanting to be who they are, just for pursuing their peaceful aspirations. So I saw a lot of injustice and pain growing up. So then I decided that I wanted to become a psychologist to help other people. I felt that I went through experiences that could help me share what I learned with other individuals. So I became first 
I worked as a clinical child psychologist, and eventually I discovered that many problems have to do not only with interpersonal or intrapersonal psychological problems, but also with community problems. And therefore, I became more interested in working with communities to create communities of fairness and wellness. So eventually, I became an academic. I decided to do a PhD in psychology, and I became an academic I was a practitioner before. I worked with families and children in schools mainly. But I saw that a lot of the problems the kids were having were preventable, that we could prevent a lot of the problems by improving the context of their lives. And is that a, a problem nowadays? Because there first has to be a sort of problem and then we, we react? Exactly. Yes, yeah, so I think in psychology we pay much more attention to reacting to problems and treating problems as opposed to preventing problems. So I dedicated my career to the prevention of psychosocial problems. So I work with communities. I, I am a Canadian citizen. I lived for many years in Canada. I worked on a big project for the Canadian government on how to promote family wellness and prevent child maltreatment. So we developed a series of policy recommendations, both for government, as well as practice recommendations for communities and practitioners, on how to enhance family well-being and how to prevent child abuse, as opposed to just how to focus on treating individuals after the fact. For our listeners, can you tell them how you did that? Yes, we... We conducted a, an international study to learn from the best countries the exemplary practices around the world. So, for example, I went to Sweden and I, I learned about their parenting programs. So in Sweden, at the time, they were implementing universal parenting programs for parents with children of all ages, because it's natural to have challenges as a parent. You have challenges when your children are two years old, when they are 15, when they are 20, when they are 30. I have three kids. Can I call you when I have to when I have yes, to problem? Yes, I think it's really important to normalize challenges in life. So the more we can help one another, parents have a lot of wisdom that they don't always have an opportunity to share with other parents. So my work has always been to work with communities so that people can help one another. People have a lot of strengths, a lot of wisdom, a lot of life experience, and they don't always need a professional to tell them how to conduct their lives. So we, I developed a, a framework for helping communities improve well-being, which consists of four principles. First of all, building on people's strengths, not deficits, asking people, What do you do well? What's working for you as a parent, as a mother, as a worker? Strengths. Prevention. How to prevent as opposed to react problems. Empowerment. And community change. And empowerment, is that a sort of what moves you? What, 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 what is your inner happiness? 
So I think I think of empowerment as consisting of two things: voice and choice. I want to have a voice, I want to have an opinion, I want to influence what happens with my life, I want to be in charge of my destiny. Not only do I want to talk about my life, but I want to make decisions that are determined by myself without oppressive imposing forces telling me how to live my life. And in mental health, unfortunately, many communities, many families, minority populations have been told how they need to lead their lives as opposed to experiencing self-determination. This is why empowerment is important. And uh, you showed us uh, some names from uh, famous people and you told if they would use their real name, people would not empower them. They will not be uh, treated with a sort of basic respect. Right. Can you tell something about that? So I, I think it's important to think about mattering in life, how people can feel valued and also have an opportunity to add value in life. And there are a lot of people, for example, people who grow up with an identity of gay or lesbian or bisexual, who need to cover their identity because society is not welcoming of many people with diverse identities. So people have to cover up. Uh, so we have some examples in the US. Uh, for example, the famous actor Martin Sheen, his real name is Ramon Esteves. And he had to change his name to Martin Sheen because he was afraid that he wouldn't get a job in Hollywood as an actor having a Hispanic name. I think it's a tragedy when people have to cover up, when people have to pretend to be something else because society doesn't accept them. They don't, society doesn't make them feel valued. If I understand it well, because your name is a really big part of your identity, it right. makes you who you are, it's given by your parents, it's a lot of value for you. Yes. And you basically have to give that up. Yes, that's exactly right. It's very painful to give up part of your identity to become something else that you are not. So in English, we call it passing. Some people want to pass for being heterosexual as opposed to being homosexual because homosexuality for many years and still in many communities is not accepted. It's not appreciated as another way of being human. So for me, mattering is about feeling valued for who you are, but also adding value. Human beings don't just want to feel appreciated, they also want to make a contribution to society. Otherwise, you feel like I am only concerned with being seen. It's important to be seen for who you are, but that is only half of the equation. Human beings want to make a difference in the world. How can I make a difference in the world? Because I think a lot of people want to. There's a sort of group pressure. And I think it's hard to be able to choose for yourself. I'm not going to change my name. I'm going to uh -huh. stick to my own beliefs. How can I do that? It's very difficult to change without social support. So when you think about big social movements, 
the civil rights movement, the disability rights movement, the LGBTQ movement. None of these movements were working on individuals by themselves. They all, they were collective efforts. So the, I think the best thing one can do is to find like-minded people who can support one another. So I, I always recommend join a group of friends who can work together, support one another to improve personal, interpersonal and community conditions. And is that to start a sort of a, a collective? Yes, I think collective efficacy is really fundamental in achieving wellness and fairness. And I think that especially people who suffer from a psychological problem or a social stigma, it's very important for them to get together with other people so that they don't feel isolated. And together people have more power than by themselves. Is that a big problem nowadays? Because when I look at my nephews, uh, sometimes friends, uh, students, I see them looking at their iPhone. Yes. Uh, they only see the happy things. Uh, I, I have a good mark. Uh, I'm successful. Uh, I got a big uh, career change. Mm -hmm. But you only see the, the, the positive things people want to share. How, how can we change that? Or how can we combine that? So I think the epidemic, the proliferation of access to social media is creating an addiction. Now, there are many negative side effects to this habit of being connected to social media all the time. And basically the way it works psychologically is that I am always comparing myself to somebody who seems perfect on social media. And therefore, if other people are perfect, I am not perfect. So when I compare my life to, to celebrities, to athletes, movie stars, millionaires. I compare myself to these people and I feel like I'm not as successful. I'm not as beautiful, wealthy, famous. And therefore, people become depressed. And there are studies showing that the more teenagers use social media, the more depressed they become. So now the question is how to fight that. And you have to create a counterculture, because this is a toxic culture, and you have to create a counterculture. And I believe that the, the counterculture we need to create is one of human relations, based on values of fairness, compassion, empathy, pro-social behaviors. So the culture is telling us, be number one. There are only very few people who can be number one, right? There is only one LeBron James and one Oprah and one Richard Branson or, you know, or Elon Musk or whoever world celebrity you want to come up with. There's only one of them. Most of us are not number one on anything. Uh, I think we need to cultivate a culture where we say, I just want to work on my talents. My interest is not being number one. My interest is being the best person I can be. So we have to create a counterculture that says, we value your efforts to improve yourself, 
We don't value you because you're number one or 10 or 15. We value, we appreciate your pursuit of improvement. We don't value you based on your ranking. And if you look at companies and managers and leaders, um, my personal opinion is that usually they look at your IQ, your skills, your knowledge, but not how do you handle things? How can you feel uh, uh, energy in a room? How can I create a vision, but also that people will follow and then strengthen each other? What is your advice for leaders nowadays? So... There was a recent interesting study done at Google, and they wanted to see which teams were the most successful teams. And they did a very comprehensive study. You know, Google is a very large, successful company. And they discovered that the most successful, productive, profitable teams are teams where people have what's called soft skills. And soft skills are about emotional intelligence. People who know how to work for the team instead of how to win. People who have high emotional intelligence, they elicit from everybody in the room their talents, their assets. So basically, you are a team builder. You are a facilitator. You want to reach a compromise. You want to bridge opinions. You want to build on the best of each idea as opposed to teams that were driven by big egos, where people said, it's my way because I'm smarter, because I graduated first in my class, or whatever. So I think there is a lot of evidence. Google is just one example of many companies that show the most successful companies are the ones that instill the value of group work, cooperation, and the greater good as opposed to the personal private good. Uh, a bridge to the personal private good. Uh, this is the Unknown Talent podcast. What is your talent? Well, I am, a, I am an author. I have written 10 books and many articles. And I think one of my talents is to synthesize knowledge, integrate knowledge from different fields of study, and communicate it in compelling ways. So, for example, um, in this conference, I gave a talk about mattering. I think mattering is a concept that incorporates many ideas from different fields. Mattering is about feeling valued by yourself, your peers, your community, and adding value to yourself, your peers, your community. So I think this is one of my talents. How to integrate knowledge from different fields, communicate it clearly and eloquently. And what is the link with, is there a link with happiness, mattering and talent? I think so. When you think about adding value, which is one of the two parts of mattering, people add value to themselves or the world through talent, right? So I can add value by being compassionate. I can develop the talent of being compassionate. We all have different talents. Talents of the head, the hand, or the heart. These are different gifts. Some people are great thinkers, great helpers, great, great emotional supporters, people with great empathy. We all have talents. 
And I think our job as individuals, parents, teachers, professors, therapists, doctors, nurses, is to help each individual discover what is your talent and what is going to be meaningful to you. So for example, my son is a chess coach. He plays chess and he's a fantastic coach. This is a talent he has been cultivating for many years. And there are very few chess coaches in New York as good as my son. I can say with whole humility and a lot of parental pride, but he works at it. He works really hard. So this is something else I want to say about talent. I don't believe, I mean, some people are innately, genetically more talented for some things than others, but everybody works really hard. You know, some people have perfect pitch for music, but they also work very hard at music. So I think it's a combination of what gifts you have and how much work and effort you invest in it. Um, is talent something you have to be good in and enjoy it as well? Or can you be good in talent and not enjoy it at all? I think if talent is to be sustainable, you have to enjoy it. So, you know, in happiness, people talk about two sides of happiness, either pleasure or purpose. Hedonic is pleasure, hedonic happiness, or eudaimonic, which is a Greek word for flourishing. I believe you need to have both because let's say you want to be a great pianist, but if, you, if you're just doing it for the purpose and you have no pleasure, I don't think it's sustainable. I think you're going to burn out and eventually say, I can't do it anymore because I'm not enjoying it. You don't get energy. You're not in balance. It feels like a chore as, of, as opposed to feeling like pleasure. So I enjoy writing. Sometimes writing is hard. Um, I work hard at my writing. I think I'm a pretty decent author. I'm not a great writer, but I work at it. And eventually, after I work hard, I enjoy the fruit of my labor. Um, so there has to be a combination of pleasure with purpose. What uh, advice would you uh, give our listeners to, to have their own form of mattering? I think mattering is a learnable skill. So I don't think people are born either mattering or not mattering. So I think there are Each one of us has two responsibilities, basically. One, to help ourselves, and two, to help others. So there are skills that we can pick up to, to become more effective in society, for example. So my research team developed an intervention. It's called funforwellness.com. It's free, it's research-based, We validated the intervention. We conducted a randomized control trial. So we teach people how to set a goal, how to create a positive habit. For example, if you want to become a better violinist, you have to set a goal. I want to study eight hours a week. Then you have to create a habit. And there is science telling us how to set a good goal, an achievable goal, how to develop positive habits, how to cultivate positive emotions, how to write 
a positive story about yourself and your life. So there are skills that people can pick up. So in my most recent book, The Laughing Guide to Wellbeing, I show through humor stories and science how we can improve our mattering and other people's mattering. Is there still something I forgot to ask or is there something you want to tell from your own personal experience that would be very learnful for the listeners? I just think that for listeners interested in promoting their own happiness and well-being and their own talents, one of the most effective ways to improve your wellness is to help others improve their own wellness. It's a beautiful thing, it's a win-win situation. Because when you help others, you're helping yourself more than you're helping others. This is, there is a lot of research showing that when I give, I get. So acts of kindness, acts of fairness, elevate us as human beings. We feel better. So that would be my first advice. And the second advice would be find proven ways to do that. So we can all learn how to be more helpful to ourselves and others. In trying to popularize these ideas, my research team created funforwellness.com and I started writing these humor books because I think people learn through humor. Um, so learning to develop a talent, learning to act with wellness and act with fairness is not a mystery. There are skills we can learn. So this is what I have dedicated my, my last few years, trying to make it accessible to people through games, through videos, through stories, through humor. So in other words, developing your talent, developing wellness and developing fairness doesn't have to be something mystical. These are things we can all learn. Uh, last question. Um, it's like uh, 30, 40, 50 years later. How would you uh, like people to remember your uh, legacy? I would like to be remembered as someone who reminded everybody that there is no wellness without fairness. Wow, this is really nice. I really, really want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Tristan. Wow.